I'm your host, Mary Beth Smith. Uh, today's guest is a good friend of mine, Jimmy Pennington, uh, and he talked to me about the the mere concept of the great American novel, basically. Uh, <laughs> um, Jimmy wasn't sure what he was going to talk about when he showed up, and we landed on that, and I think I'm incredibly glad we did, because uh, it was a really awesome conversation. It got really philosophical at points. Um, he started to kind of say, psychoanalyze me <laughs> at a couple points, um, which was really fun for me. Uh, and he's a pretty good psychoanalysis of himself, um, pretty consistently. Uh, and we just had an awesome conversation. Uh, it goes a little longer than an hour because fuck it, I'm doing what I want. Uh, and I thought it was a great conversation, so I didn't want to cut it off. Um, uh, most of the books he talked about I have never read, uh, so it made me feel incredibly humbled. Um, uh, but I've never claimed to be someone who is well-read, uh, unfortunately. Uh, I'll work on that. We'll see. Uh, there's a long conversation about scary movies that's very Halloween-appropriate. Um, tomorrow is indeed Halloween, uh, I am dressing up as Rogue from the X-Men to continue a three, four-year tradition of dressing up as powerful fictional characters that I enjoy. Uh, um, this weekend is a fun one because uh, all week uh, the Nerdlogs and I have been preparing uh, voraciously for our November run that starts this Friday at 10 o'clock at the Public House Theater. Uh, those tickets are $15, um, but there are some ways to get reduced ticket prices if you would like, uh, let me know, uh, because we just want people to see the show. Um, we're very, very proud of it. The Multiverse versus George Lucas. Um, I play a myriad of different characters, most of us do, because uh, there just aren't that many of us. Uh, my dear friend Ryan Ben from uh, Raygun Reagan and past guest of the show, uh, Fame, is uh, playing with us in this show, uh, even though he's not a member of the Nerlogs, and I'm really, really stoked that I'm getting to work with him on this, uh, and all the others, obviously, but they're, they're there all the time. Um... Cool. Uh, so ch please check that out. Friday nights, 10 o'clock in November, uh, the first four Fridays. Uh, Reagan Reagan continues on Wednesdays at 8 o'clock, and those shows are just getting better and better. Please, please come check those out if you're a fan of the show at all. Um, and even if you're not a fan of the show, if you mistakenly clicked on this link, and you're like, who is this woman rambling and sounding like she's losing her voice uh that's speaking to me in the headphones or through my computer speakers the answer is it's me and i would argue that you would like the show um the nerlogs have a fun trivia night coming up this sunday the night when our usual uh sketch show would be 
So come check that out at the public house, 7 o'clock, uh, November 3rd. Uh, the show opens on the 1st. What else can I give you dates for? I don't know. Um, please, please, come check out those shows. Please, please, enjoy this episode. I think it's a especially good one. You clearly pressed start. I did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I wasn't trying to be secretive about okay. it at this point. That's fine. All right. <laughs> oh man, my guest today is Jimmy Pennington. Um, that him giving me a hard time is probably going to be a theme of this entire podcast. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> Give a toaster, but not a toaster oven. Oh, see? There but it I'm is. just saying you're missing out on an opportunity to melt cheese on already toasted bread. You can use an oven for that. Oh, so I guess efficiency is not an issue for you. Like, no. you don't mind using massive amounts of energy <laughs> to get very little done. I have a high efficiency washer dryer that does Yeah, everything. next to your oven. Yeah. Which is kind of awesome. <laughs> yeah, we got him. <laughs> you can wash your vegetables in there before you cook them. I could. I they I I never have. And so I've already blown your mind. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jimmy's gonna talk to me about the great American novel. Sure. Let's talk about. Okay. Um, how? What do you think was your the inception of your love of um, of novels in general? Um, mm. But you can also speak to the idea of the great American novel. Okay. I uh, found a Stephen King book when I was really young. Uh, I don't know exactly, but I would say 12. Like okay. It's got to be in those really mm-hmm. formative years. For sure. And also it has to be a time when horror can scare you. Yeah. Which, you know, recently Stephen King said it's impossible to scare people anymore. He huh. said that, you know, movies uh, have desensitized us to what used to be considered horror. I mean, Interesting. You look at horror movies back in the day it was all mm-hmm. about the suggestion mm-hmm. and now it is very much so about like the graphic mm-hmm. gore of it mm-hmm. and he's like it's hard to scare people with ideas now um you've seen funny games right no oh you haven't no. oh it's really uh it's haneke uh is that his name Mike, michael haneke okay uh, but he made it originally, he's a foreign director and he yeah, made he it. remade it into American. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's like Michael Pitt and, uh, uh, Naomi Watts and a few other, um, big names in it. But it's really about that idea of like subverting, um, modern horror into, um, being more about the suggestion of horror. And it's terrifying. It's maybe the scariest movie I've ever seen. Did it's, you watch it in its original language or in English? I watched the English version. But, was but it's, I from what I've heard, it's like essentially a shot for shot remake. Oh. Um, he just, I don't know why, he just wanted it to, I guess he wanted it to be for American markets without people being like, oh, it's some dumb foreign film, you know? Yeah. No. Anyway, that was a, yeah, I think I, you'd like it. I'll check it out. It's on Netflix. Mm. I don't have Netflix. I don't have the internet. <laughs> I wish I was kidding. I, I realized you probably weren't. <laughs> I'm living in a black hole of technology. And right you just now. told me there aren't any windows either. No, I'm basically living in Plato's cave. <laughs> I build a fire and then I do little dances with uh, finger puppets and shadows mm-hmm. on my wall. That's great. And I keep myself that amused. That sounds really. Yeah. That sounds great. <laughs> Are you doing okay? <laughs> great. I'm doing great. How long have you been living there? Uh, only a with, few months. With without internet the whole time? Yeah, no, no internet, no cable. It's not that bad. 
we're talking about... You read about, a lot. I'm sure you read a lot. Well, I'll tell you the truth. I uh, I have read a lot in my life, mm-hmm. and I've read, uh, been a reader for a long time, but um, like a year and eight months ago, uh, I changed something in my life, and uh, <laughs> I couldn't read anymore. Really? Not that I couldn't, but I just didn't. I stopped huh. almost entirely. I read one thing repeatedly, which, you know, whatever. But, you know, I you know I quit drinking a year and eight yeah. months ago, and you would think that's when you would really... Re- but a lot of stuff just got pushed to the side when I was just trying to figure out what does my day look like when I have it, when I have a When you have a little thing, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so recently, um, it's interesting, I got... <laughs> So this kind of bookends. Um, my friend Steve Nelson let me borrow Doctor Sleep, which is Stephen King's newest book. Cool. And he said you should read this. It's really fun. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, I opened it and I read it in three days. Oh. And it started it off on this really like I'm really been reading a lot then again. Cool. And uh, it was interesting because that book definitely has like. Stephen King has... This is the first time I've read Stephen King in a very long time. What was the first one that you read? Do you remember? It had to have been Carrie or Cujo. I, I can see the C. I think... No, it was Christine. Oh. I, I read Christine first. Which, as a kid, was so That's the car frightening. One, right? Yeah, it's about a car that... You know, has I've never read any Stephen thing. King. I'm very easily frightened. <laughs> well, you know, his early stuff will scare the shit out of I know, of me. I know, and that's why I've never... I was At that age, I was reading Gary Paulson and Animorphs books. Like, those were oh, okay. my jam. Well, when I was reading that Stephen, first Stephen King book, you weren't even a twinkle in your father's balls. <laughs> no, I wasn't. You know, you were... Well, you were 12. Yeah. I'm 25. You were too. Okay, I was going to say, you're not that old. Okay. You're not that old. Um, um, yeah, and so I read that, and then I just started reading again. Um, I really love reading a lot. Um, I've had to reread some books. Do you feel like you've been... So you've been reading more since you read Dr. Sleep. Is that what you're saying? Oh, yeah. Cool. I've pretty much constantly been reading since then. Cool. So like over Great. the course of two weeks, I've read Dr. Sleep. I read This Is How You Lose Her, which is the new Juno Diaz book. Who also wrote The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde. Yep. They did yeah. not like This Is How You Lose Her. Um, I know I'm familiar with the name. Yeah. But. Uh, and then I read August Osage County recently. Mm-hmm. And then I read, and now I'm reading. I figured based on our Right. I literally had just read oh, gotcha. when I made that joke. Gotcha. Um, and, uh, and then I read, and now I'm reading Telegraph Avenue by... Michael Chabon, Chabon. Chabon. Oh, yeah. The guy wrote Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, so, yes. Awesome. Uh, what, um, so would you consider Stephen King one of your favorite authors? Or is it just something that you like to read? I consider Stephen King, as far as reading goes, kind of like a, um, Something that your mom made growing up uh, <laughs> that she didn't make very well, you will always love it. Yes, that um, is a great analogy. You know, I love meatloaf, uh-huh. and I 
like I don't if I go to a place that's like oh it's a play on meatloaf with veal and all stuff and I'm like I don't really want, I want like I want meatloaf it's kind of dry meatloaf. with ketchup on it I actually don't even want that I want the leftover meatloaf the next day <laughs> on peanut butter sandwiches which is oh. the best sandwich in the world oh, the best sandwich in the world that's foul. you know what I will not accept this oh how did you discover that you would like that my dad made the worst lunches and he would make pretty much open a fridge and throw shit together it was even less it was get two pieces of bread put peanut butter on them what else is in the fridge (laughs) so he would make salami cheese and peanut butter sandwiches turkey and peanut butter sandwiches meatloaf peanut butter sandwiches roast beef peanut butter sandwiches and so now i eat peanut butter on everything yeah, you've told, we've talked about that before. Yeah, I love peanut butter. I had a peanut butter and apple sandwich before you got here, and I honestly was like, this is appropriate, because I know I'm talking to you before yeah. about how much peanut butter he I eats. I just chop up apples and dip them in peanut butter mm-hmm. constantly. Mm-hmm. I take the bread out. I just eat peanut butter right out of the jar. And then I like dip it in something else. Mark Logsdon just made apple butter and gave me a jar Ooh. of it, and it's really good with peanut butter. That sounds great. Um... Yeah, so that's how Stephen King is. Like, right. it's very much comfort. so a It's like comfort food. He's also got a voice that I like. And this is not to say in any way that I don't think he's a good writer. Right. It's not anything about, like, I don't think he is whatever. It's just something that's very comforting to me. Sure. His voice, the way he writes, is very comforting to mm-hmm. me. And uh, that's an amazing thing mm-hmm. to make an impression like that. Because I read other books when I was younger, and sure. nobody has had that kind of staying power in my head. I mean, yeah, when I, I mean, he's one of the most book, prolific novels or novelists yeah, of all time. Absolutely, and also he has the ability to really um, dig deeper into his characters than a lot of people do. It's interesting. That's cool. I mean, I think there's a lot to say about the genre as far as that goes though like if you're gonna if you want to try to get psychological in a you know book that's supposed to be unsettling it makes sense right Uh, and he does a great job of taking his own demons and turning them into literal demons interesting like uh he has said over and over again that you know the shining is about a guy trying to get sober I mean, yeah. that's why yeah, George I've heard that before. goes to the hotel. Right. Because he cannot stop drinking. Yeah. Like Stephen King. <laughs> so when Stephen King stopped drinking, this is how he felt. He hmm. was dry. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how Danny, um, meeting uh, the older black guy mm-hmm. who also has The Shining, mm-hmm. and the sense of relief Danny feels that he's not the only person who doesn't yeah, stop yeah. with his brain, that's how Stephen King felt finding out that other, other people, people. Could, couldn't quit drinking and finally meeting them. Interesting. And That's so cool. it's really interesting to look at The Shining in that context too. Have you seen or heard about Room 237? I tried to watch it. I, it you was, didn't like it? I didn't dislike it, but uh, I have something really weird about like... It's really... Criticism I haven't seen way. it yet, but it, I know it's very in-depth critical. <sighs> yeah. Some stuff I just don't want the layers of the onion peeled back on so much because that's totally fair you know you kind of like it's like saying the same word over and over again you completely lose <laughs> feels weird in yeah, the yeah. Word. and uh watching that movie i was like oh no showing the what same if i scene? like oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah uh interesting that dissuades me from wanting to watch it i'm not like a huge shining fan by any means though i just watched it for the first time relatively recently it shining also in context is a great movie 
Oh, thank you. Anyway, you never heard a crow man throw up before. Uh, so, no, I was just thanking you for the opportunity to clean up your throat. No, of course, it's <laughs> considered quite a compliment in some countries. Uh, what was uh, oh, I forget what I was thinking. Uh, something else about how the shining is. Oh, we hear about the way Stanley Kubrick treated uh, what's her name? Uh, the female lead. Yeah, I don't know her name. Uh, She's. And crazy he, looking. Yeah, and he also made that movie very misogynist, where the book is not. Interesting. Uh, the book ends very uh, totally differently than the movie. Huh. And uh, in a pointed way, and that's why since it came out, Stephen King has said that I have. He doesn't. That movie is not a representation of my work. I've and heard that, but I have. I think I didn't history know that. has been kinder to Stephen King about that. Because about the... with Kubrick, everybody's like, fuck, Stephen mm-hmm. King, he doesn't know what he's talking about. This movie's right. perfect. I think that we're able to have a richer dialogue because of all the information on the internet about it, where it's like, the oh. movie is great, but he has a point about right. this. You right, know, like he all, purposefully... all this female does in the movie is scream and There's drop. A... Yeah, I was going like, to do the arm noodle thing. arms. Her arms like, are... Constantly <laughs> dropping weapons for two yeah. hours. And yeah. that's not the book. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, that's not what happens in the book. That's so funny, because it's what... Uh, Stephanie really loves it, my roommate. And uh, when she found out that I hadn't seen it yet, when she first moved in uh, last October, she was just like, we have to watch The Shining. Sure, yeah. So, you know, one afternoon, uh, we popped it in, and I was just like, are you sure I'm not going to be... Like, I don't like scary movies. And she's like, no, you'll be fine. There's Were you two fine? or three things. Huh? Were you fine? It's a scary movie. Uh, I I don't like that lady with all the oh with her She said this is the worst part. She said if you want to cover your eyes, you can. This is I promise. This is the worst part. And I like saw her once, and I was like, oh no no. And so I was like, so I didn't watch most of when she was on screen because that's just absolutely unsettling. But the other stuff was okay. The twins are okay. The blood's okay. Yeah, that's uh, the, I think the most unsettling thing about The Shining is the degree to which someone loses gra- their grasp. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm okay. For some reason, I'm okay more with like more thriller-type things. Yeah. And I just don't like when people look creepy. and like I've seen The Ring. I saw The Ring when I was in eighth grade, and it was one of the first scary movies I'd ever seen because I, at a young age, realized... I don't enjoy the feeling of being scared. So, I can avoid this if I want to. I never have wow. to watch these movies. Um, I For a long time, I, I didn't ride roller coasters. And then the first time I rode one, I was like, that was terrifying, but also amazing. Yeah. You know? Which I think is what a lot of people get, or some people get from scary movies. Sure. But I just, there's not the amazing thing for me when it comes to movies and books that are supposed to be scary it's For like sure. this was just unsettling i feel unsettled and i don't feel satisfied i feel that way about uh tv shows about serial killers yeah i'm always like nah it's I'm just right a lot this. of yeah yeah like, yeah i don't want to i don't want to think about, think about people, people methodically out. and also like i don't want to hear about people who don't kill you right away like you're oh. gonna kill me just kill me right away yeah please that's all i want yeah i don't uh it's yeah <clears throat> So I guess when I saw the ring of uh, that girl crawling out of the well, is that weird walk. super creepy. A lot of that's a very common theme in scary things: the uh, distorted body 
shapes and images. Yeah, because it immediately jars you. Mm -hmm. like, no, your <laughs> arms should not be doing that. Why are you doing uh, that? Yeah, so after that, I was like, oof, didn't like that. Gonna try to not do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I'm surprised that you also successfully then didn't, though. Uh, really, yeah. It's very rare that I see scary movies. I watch, The only times I've ever watched scary movies are with other people when I'm trying not to be a jackass and be like, no, I don't want to watch this. Yeah. I, there were times in high school where my friends would go to see a movie. We had a two-theater movie theater. And my friends would go see one movie, and I would go see the one in the other theater, sometimes by myself, hmm. uh, because I wouldn't want to see what they were seeing. Uh, <laughs> and we lived in a really small town uh, and had like a it was like a 250 theater so one of the things we always did was go see the movies they were playing so I hated when horror movies would come because it would automatically knock out half of my options uh, for what to do that weekend that is very <laughs> yeah uh, more often than not I would see both movies they were playing in that theater and more often than not it was some of the worst movies I've ever seen Sounds about right. <laughs> Small-town movie theater. Yeah, yeah. Shark Tale. Remember that? No. It was uh, Will Smith voiced the lead in an animated movie about sharks. Sweet. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Will Smith. Yep. Uh, could hear him smirking. Uh, uh, yep. Anyway. Uh, yeah, so just... I don't like scary things, so I avoid them. Okay. I'll try not to scare you. Uh... In general, I don't think I'm a easily like I'm not. I don't think I'm easily scared by people trying to specifically scare me by jumping around corners and things like that. Yeah. But I just don't. I don't like when I'm, you know, when I'm watching something, I'm watching it to to laugh or to cry or to feel things. Uh, and I guess terror is a feeling, but it's not one that I enjoy. Every once in a while, I do enjoy being sad and being contemplative from something that I'm watching. I guess I think there's a larger question here is that do you find yourself um, <clears throat> circumnavigating everything you have a fear of? Not just movies? So if you feel fear, do you find yourself pushing away from it always? And I don't mean horror. I right. mean, like, let's say you have a fear of intimacy. Right. Do you, like, end relationships, even if you don't intentionally end them, maybe subconsciously end them before they get... Like, that's what I mean. Right. I, I understand what you're asking, uh, and I do think that it's uh, a pertinent question based on what I just described. I don't, th I don't think so. Okay. Uh, I, th I think if there's, I'm, I'm afraid of, uh, I'm afraid of, of, um, you know, being able to not being able to support myself. That's one of the things I'm monetarily. I'm, uh, yeah, mostly. Oh, okay. Um, uh, so that. For, I mean, I was without a job for over a year, so yeah. I had a, a horrible anxiety during that amount of time. But at the same time, I knew that I was I was fine financially for for a while, or I, I wouldn't have stayed unemployed. Um, uh, but at the same time, it was just like always weighing on me. Um, That's really interesting because you were out of a job for a year, mm -hmm. and you say your biggest fear is not to be able to support yourself. Clearly, it's one of them. Yeah, but clearly, you're able to. Yeah, I know. I, I so think, I wonder what part of your brain this fear occupies that's, that is like mm -hmm. not being used. Isn't that weird? I I think that's really. I think about that. I think that's really time. astute though about me because I do think that like I worry about things that I shouldn't worry about. 
like I, I worry that people don't like me and I'm a relatively likable, nice person. Uh, I say that, you know, with some self-awareness and maybe that makes me sound like an asshole, but... No, it doesn't. It's weird, though, because, I mean, I'm, you're talking to, you know, I have 35 years of worry. And, uh, <laughs> I constantly... I spend, you know, a large part of my day trying not to have arguments with people in my brain. You know, like, I walk dogs and I, I spend, a, like, on a bad day, I spend that entire time arguing with someone. Really? Oh, yeah. Just in my head. In your head? Being like, people that you know? People I know. People that uh, you pass? People I don't know. Not usually strangers. Usually, like, like roommates. I lived with two people for a long time over in Logan Square. Uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, this is just one... It could be anyone, but mm-hmm. I'm just saying this one, like, if they if there were dishes in the sink, I could literally fixate on that for a day. Like, That's just crazy. being like, you know, blah, blah. it is sick. Well, it is part of an illness that I'm yeah. trying to address because what does my life look like when I stop doing that? Right. And then I get scared. It's like you. It's like you said. What is what occupies blank, your sp- sure, head? My security blanket is worry. You know, my security blanket is anxiety and dread. Mm-hmm. You know, look at like Kierkegaard. This is the human condition unless we do something about it. Mm-hmm. And my human condition is this existential dread and anxiety. Mm-hmm. How I combat that is in the positive ways, you know, I try to let go and have faith in the universe's ability to figure out things because every time I've tried to control anything in my fucking life, it's gone the exact opposite direction I want to. Because control is elusive. Mm -hmm. You know, it's an illusion. Mm -hmm. There is no control. We want to have control. We want people to believe that we have control. We want to manipulate control from people. It just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. You know? If I let go and just be myself, um, will people run away from me? You know, that's like something that a lot of people worry about. Yeah. And I think it's, there's so much of that is hatred of self, Mm -hmm. which is so counterintuitive Mm -hmm. as a learned behavior. Mm -hmm. Or it's a genetic thing. I I don't know. Nature and nurture. Yeah, yeah. To be honest, I really don't give a shit. Yeah. If somebody came out, though I would say this, if somebody came out with a pill tomorrow that absolutely cured 100% depression and anxiety, there would be much larger problems. Oh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think that people like yourself and me and a lot of people who are in performing, yeah. this is something that is a very common theme. For sure. So common that I would say we, I, a lot of us lose sight that it isn't everyone. You know, it is very specific. Yeah, I totally agree you know with I mean? you. Like yeah. Like my friends who own businesses and like live in smaller towns and have families. Uh-huh. They're not sitting they around pos- doing this. Obsess you know over I mean? stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. They're not worried about perception. Like, yeah. what do these... And some of them are. It's not everybody. Like, there's always the, well, keeping up with appearances, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Sure, 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 sure. But literally spending their day, like... And this is something I hear from people. And I try not to get too involved in it, but people talk about, like, you know, I want... I just want this person to think this of me. Mm-hmm. And to me, I'm just like, that's poison. That is absolute is. poison. Yeah. And to get back to books... In a way, that is how I understand the larger world. When I read a book, I am able to step back from the immediacy of my own projections, right? I don't have to look at my interactions with other people as the whole world anymore because I'm literally reading about a world that is different. Cool. Unless I'm reading a book by somebody like me and then I'm like, right. everybody is like this, man. <laughs> Fuck it. 
That's really cool. I really like that. And the only, my only uh, reaction personally to it is that um, when I uh, when I graduated high school, one of my most like um, I think personality forming times of my life was uh, right right after high school and right before college. Um, because I really looked back at, like, what my high school experience taught me, um, and I was just like, you know what, who cares, like, who cares if I'm this really nerdy person who likes all these really specific things, who, um, you know, I went to a math and science high school, and that's something that, uh, we, being surrounded by people who were a lot like me, it's like you said, it helped me realize that, um, it helped me realize that there are a lot of people who were like-minded like me. And then once I got out of that environment, it was kind of shell shocking. I was like, Oh wait, Oh, not everyone's like that. Um, but the thing that I took away from it is that, uh, if I, uh, was the person that I knew I could be at, at my best, you know, we're talking about us, um, not necessarily at our worst, but not at our best, you know, mm. at, at, uh, at, at our, our unhealthy times of these like frustrations and things that we talk about, but at my best, if I, if I'm being the person I know I can be, uh, and, and, and positive and, and enthusiastic and, uh, I like the things I like without anyone, without caring about what anyone thinks about that, uh, then I will naturally, like you said, uh, about giving away control. Uh, this is my giving away control is being myself. And I, I hopefully will naturally find myself surrounded by people that like me for that reason, because they like me because of the, I am being my own personality instead of trying to be someone that I'm not. Uh, Sure. It seems like an incredibly simple, uh, and, and, uh, simplistic and idealistic thing that maybe doesn't need to be stated, but I have to remind myself of that a lot. I think that it's something that a lot of, <laughs> I think it's something that people like you mm-hmm. don't need to remind yourself as often. Yeah. And people, there's a lot of people who don't remind themselves of it enough. You know what I mean? I think mean? you're right. I think there's a tendency for people like you and me to um, really find fault in ourselves where it doesn't necessarily yeah. exist. Yeah. And also, you know what? Thoughts aren't, feel- or feelings aren't uh, who we are. Yeah. You know, uh, people talk about like jobs, like your job isn't who you are mm-hmm. and God help you if it is, yeah. I, that's sad, but yeah. like also your feelings aren't who you are, mm-hmm. you know, your actions dictate who you are. Mm-hmm. And like, that's something I've had to really come to terms with very recently is like, you know, I have these very negative thoughts and feelings about both myself and people around me. A lot of times mm-hmm. I have very little control over having those thoughts. Yeah. They just come into my brain. Sure. What I do have control over is, is that going to affect how I, in the world, treat people, you know? Right. And, uh, it's, it's elusive. It's kind of, you know, like trying to, um, you know, squeeze a balloon and that's then pop it, but it still has just a little amount of air in it. Mm -hmm. So every time you try and pop it, it just pops out somewhere else. Like Mm -hmm. if I get a grasp on my negativity, then my sarcasm comes out. Any other kind of fucking acting out, like yeah. I'm jerking off totally... to my iPhone or something, like some bad, <laughs> like something that I don't need to be doing is what I'm going to be obsessed with. I can with. totally see that about you. Yeah. Honestly. In, well. In the, I don't know, a little over a year that I've known you. Well, you know, and when I get frustrated, 
that's when that is when the real opportunities for growth happen. Mm -hmm. And and I'd like it. I'd like to not have to say that this anymore. Rarely do I seize those opportunities in the correct way. Mm -hmm. um, I get frustrated with people, and you know because of my brain, I've already. I, I meet, when I meet someone, I would like to just meet them and know them. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm working toward that. But right now, when I meet someone new, if I don't immediately perceive that they are a thoughtful, intelligent person, my immediate brain, half of it checks out and starts coming up with how to say something so rude to them that they, that they will never anymore. speak to me <laughs> no. again. And it's awful. Yeah. It is absolutely terrible. Mm. It's the worst thing in the world. And I only recently have realized that this is a defect of character. Mm. I used to think it was my strength. I was oh, like, no. I have, it was like, uh, I'm a superhero and my super ability is to make everyone go away from me. Oh like, gosh. What is that? But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what? <laughs> I love this. I'm gonna try to bring it back to. Okay. Um, what do? Okay. So speak to the uh, concept of a great American novel. I think the great American novel, and we said this before we we started recording, yeah. was um, you know, it's a concept that came after American novels had already started being written, mm -hmm. and I think that. People have tried to put it onto stuff that was written before it was a concept, and then people have tried to achieve it as a concept since. I think the Great American Novel will always remain just this elusive umbrella mm -hmm. under which all kinds of fiction can be written. I would say it's fiction, though, obviously. Like, sure. You know, a novel, a novel an autobiographical novel. Yeah. or memoir is not going to be a Great American Novel, just by definition. But what do you think constitutes the idea? Of a Great American Novel? I think <laughs> it relates the American experience. Okay. And that's what makes it elusive. Right. Because the American Who experience can say what is, that is so varied. Yeah. I mean, can, obviously, based on even just the, like, super absolutely. psychological conversation that we were just right. having. I mean, you could say, like, the great American novel is about suburbia, but you'd be missing out on the cities. Yeah. And you could say it's about the cities, but then you're missing out on the rural areas. Mm -hmm. Or you could put in the present tense, and then it's missing on the history, like... That that is what's great about the great American novel. Uh, you know, I I think that uh, people have said that Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is maybe the great American novel. I love having the conversation of what is maybe the great American novel. Uh -huh. I think Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is interesting. I don't think it's a great American. Yeah, novel. I I uh, it seems pretty. Uh, it's like you said, you miss out on all the, you know, suburbia stuff. What but you miss does... out also, I think that the great American novel can't be written from the perspective of a critic. Oh, And a lot of fear and loathing is uh, looking at something from a distance and judging. And, it, and yeah. not, not judging in a negative way, but just like staring back and relating it right that's a good point instead of just like living in the experience in, yes it has to be in that experience in some way uh, that's why i think like some of the best stuff like i think east of eden by steinbeck oh, is uh -huh. probably one i mean it's one of my top five books of all time but that starts getting really into the psychology of america 
cool. And that's what I think the great American novel yeah, is. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with you just based on, you know, more limited experience. I am not nearly as well-read as you are. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think if you're going to talk about it, it seems like it has to be, it seems like it has to delve into what it means to be an American, that psychological experience My, that you're talking about. I would say this, though. I think that the great American novel has to have diversity in it yeah uh and i'll say beca that because of the following america as an idea and as a um practice of a you know great um what is that word the experiment okay. of america yeah yeah in practice has to include the experience of black americans in it in a uh -huh. big way uh-huh um, and that's really important to me, and it's something that's missing from a lot of novels. Like, great novels that completely don't address the fact that we only exist in the way that we do because of free labor. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, like, yeah. You know what I mean? And like, a huge part... Wow, that's A huge part of our population is has this um, trauma mm -hmm. that is still present in every day. Mm -hmm. and, and it would be so easy... For someone to True. say, like, you weren't a slave and your parents weren't slaves, so slavery, don't talk to me about slavery. And it's like, you, if you say that, you're an idiot. Uh, <laughs> like, you really are a stupid, thoughtless person yeah. and should not be around. Like, yeah. I, I, whatever. <laughs> My dad would probably say that. I don't want him to die. But like, you know, the truth is that, like, you know, this is the American experience in every in every way. We, we have to be honest about it. Sure. You know? like... There's the only reason that there's a north side and a south side to Chicago. It has nothing to fucking do with the map. It has everything to do with race. Yeah, absolutely. Race has to play a part in yeah. anything American. And it's unfortunate. Uh huh. But it's reality. Mm -hmm. Like, I would love for it not to be the case, but I have no idea how to do that. So all mm -hmm. I can do is, like, smile at black people. Not be racist. Like, like, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 like, I try, like, I try to truly treat everybody equally, but. Yeah. You know, it's a challenging thing. You know, racism is pervasive in America. Mm -hmm. It is pervasive. Mm -hmm. and, and it, and it, it, uh, it bleeds into a lot of other things like classism. Totally. Uh, well, you know, the socioeconomic thing is so fucked in this country. Yeah. Especially now. Uh, it's just terrible. <laughs> uh, and like, and a lot of that comes from racism. I mean, racism, look at the prisons 80 percent mm -hmm. of our prison population are adult black men i mean people you cannot make the argument that those are the only people committing the crimes no or you're again an idiot like yeah. it's just not where are the cops profiling well yeah. the cops are in these neighborhoods why are they there and not in the fucking boardrooms uh in yeah. the stock market yeah now this is a freshman college freshman argument right 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 <laughs> there are nuances to it's all this. obviously a sim you know a simplification right. but it's it's a you know a point yeah worthy of being made and i think that you know i've made a conscious effort to read more diverse authors because i read a lot of hemingway i read mm -hmm. a lot of steinbeck i love david foster wallace is one of my favorite writers have you read you've read infinite jest i have i know everybody likes to make fun of people who have read infinite jest. i wasn't planning i know i know but all. people do uh, my friend of mine wrote an article for the red eye where she wrote an, uh, Nikki Pierce wrote an article about like oh what, I know that name but I never she wrote something about like what you're anything. reading on the red line says about you and I was so annoyed really? by what she said about Infinite Jest I was like I 
I liked it. It's my favorite book of all time. Really? I read it when I was 23 in my last year of college before I went into the mental institution. Uh, had nothing to do with it. Uh, and it's an incredible book. But it definitely still goes in that direction. Hmm. This is all, you know, a very It's still super white. It's a very... Uh, I, I hate to say it, but it is like... It's a very superficial... Not superficial at all. That's the wrong Sorry, word. yeah. But it's a very, like, specific. And okay. I think that's what's great about it. I'm not saying that authors have any responsibility to do any of this. Mm-hmm. I'm saying that in my mind, if I want to read the great American novel, it has to have these parts. Sure. I totally agree with you. Um, and plus, Infinite Justice is goddamn great. <laughs> uh, I have some friends on Squall um, who, like... Uh, Walt Delaney's read it all, I think. And I think David Foster Wallace is one of his favorite authors. And Chandler Goodman is, like, working his way through it. He's also been on the... He was on the last episode of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but he, like... Yeah, I think he takes it, like, section by section. Or he tries to read ten pages a day or something like that. That's interesting. I wonder really, where he is in the book. Because... I don't know. I noticed when I read it, um, it took me a while to get through the first 150 pages... Then it went real fast. Maybe, yeah. Honestly, I haven't talked to him about it in probably a couple months. So he may be finished reading it. And it's not... I mean, you have to also remember, like, it's a 1,300-page book, but 300 of that is footnotes. So you, oh, yeah. You, like, two, uh, like, when I read it, I had two bookmarks. So I would go back mm-hmm, to the footnotes. That makes sense. Um, he has are, pages of, like, he'll have a footnote that's multiple pages long, right? He'll have a footnote that is not only multiple pages long but has addendums and footnotes within the footnote. I mean, it gets really hard to navigate some points. Oh. And it's all by, well, I think it's all by design, but who knows? I don't know if I could do it. You could do it. If you, do you have a Kindle? Mm-hmm. Mark? Uh, I have a Nook. Logsdon read it, and he read it on an e-book or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And it's much easier because the footnotes, you just press you just a button, back. and yeah, it'll yeah, show yeah. it to it you. It is a lot easier. But there's a lot of stuff in the book that's also like quick reading. Like Some of the footnotes are like, some character is a amateur director, and the footnote is his what they directed. Yeah, and so it gets that's like so very cool. Intuitive. I mean, it's not that I don't want to. Uh, are you have you watched any Parks and Rec at all? Yeah. Uh, have you Mike Sure, the showrunner, is a huge David Foster Wallace fan. Uh, he also he's directed a uh, a music video for uh, maybe the Mountain Goats. I can't remember what the band is. That was all. Um, uh, Infinite Jest themed and he has done he did one episode in the most recent season that has a bunch of uh, Infinite Jest easter eggs in it really? yeah names uh, like character names place names uh, things that happen yeah like things that happen within the episode someone on a blog you know it was like 20 some odd different references that. that's why i brought it up because i knew if it was your favorite book you'd love that yeah, yeah awesome. but Mar- mike shares a, a cute i mean it's his favorite book as well um so it's it's definitely in the most recent season oh it's the um adam scott goes back to his hometown that's all i i don't remember what the name of the that's fine i mean at some point i'll be house the... sitting and watching every episode from the season because yeah. that's how i watch television <laughs> I don't have access That's right. any place else. You don't have Netflix or the internet. I get. I saw a movie oh, last night. Nice. I seen. You see? I saw Twelve Years a Slave. Oh, how was it? It's good, but man, is it hard to watch? Really? You know, I want to see it really bad. Let me say this too: Brad Pitt, 
Why are you in the <laughs> Really? <laughs> it's just weird. It's fucking... It's just weird. Fassbender. He is incredible. He's my man. He's... I think he's one of the best actors working right now. This part is great. He yeah. and he... Every... All this cast and supporting Benedict Cumberbatch is awesome. Oh, I love Benedict Cumberbatch too. Well, I'm interested to see him in August Osage County. Me too. I think his casting is really interesting. I do too. It's the smallest part in the play. It is, but it's also like... It's not a part that I would associate him with at all. No? It's a very like mousy kind of... Almost... I... I've never seen the play. I've only read it. Yeah. I've, I don't know if I've ever read it all the way through. It's incredible. I, I've reading. seen it. I've seen right. it. Uh, in the reading of it. I was supposed to read it, it for a class, but I'd already seen it. So yeah. I think I read like the first two acts and then I was like, I know the rest. <laughs> well, at least it's a play and not a movie because yeah. then you don't know if you actually saw it. Right. Yeah. I um, mean, I saw it all. In the book though, it does read a little bit like he's almost special yes yes it does uh it does in the play too see that's interesting Mm -hmm. because then there are moments in where clearly he's not Mm -hmm. like it that's i think that's probably the most interesting storyline in the play perhaps i don't know beverly's is pretty yeah Uh, yeah i mean you only see him for i guess by five seconds oh oh and it's so awesome um i mean obviously but that's like a whole through line of Right. That, that's the inciting incident. That's a conflict. It's true. Uh, but yeah, as far as like smaller storyline. Oh yeah. That one is. Whoa. Well. What is it? The, little, the little Charles. Gene and uh, the uncle. <laughs> yeah. That's gonna it's be. a it's a cool play. I'm I'm interested to see the. I'm really interested to see uh, the film adaptation. <sighs> I don't have incredibly high expectations. I would say I just hope I'm not horribly disappointed. Well, I saw Killer Joe, the movie. I had never read Killer Joe. I mean, yeah. Or seen it on stage, I but I really liked the movie. The movie was pretty insane. It's insane. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. It was uh, I think everyone except Emile Hirsch was really well cast. I, I didn't love Emile Hirsch. I don't either. think he's good in anything. I don't think so either. No, I liked him in Milk. Oh, he is good in milk. Everyone's good in milk. Here's the thing about Into the Wild. Mm-hmm. I don't like that story. Mm-hmm. I don't like the character who wrote the story. Mm-hmm. And I don't... It's not sympathetic to me. Yeah. The whole end I don't really of that movie with either. him, like, looking into the Dying. wilderness, all I kept thinking was... You didn't have to you do fucking this. idiot? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. This, like, really intentional move that you've made mm-hmm. is lost on me. Mm-hmm. But that was me. I agree with you. Looking uh, he's terrible in um, taking Woodstock. Just I don't awful. Know what that is. Uh, it wasn't a very good movie. Uh, Dimitri Martin was the lead. It was an Ang Lee movie. Oh wow! Yeah, it came out like 2010, 2011. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, it was right. I saw it right after I moved to Chicago. Maybe a little before that. 2009, 2010. <laughs> um, it's, it's not worth watching. Um, I I was listening to a, a film podcast based out of Chicago, and um, one of the um, hosts said that uh, Emil Hirsch, the only person that he could think of worse than Emil Hirsch to cast as a Vietnam War veteran, was uh, Malia Obama. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I've ever laughed harder, at, especially at a non-comedy podcast. Like it was that. hilarious. <laughs> it was so funny. Oh, uh, man. Anyway, uh, I agree with you. 
I think that if something is going to claim to be a great American novel, or if people are going to consider it the great American novel, then it should probably encompass the greater American experience. And I think that in and this is the diagnostic of America is like if that's going to be the case, then you have to address anxiety, and yeah, dread and all that stuff because this is a country of risk. You know, and all that stuff comes hand in hand. There's all this reward in America, but it's also all this risk. Nobody takes risk just like, "Eh, whatever, you know. Mm. That's what I think. And if you do, then you probably don't succeed at them. And also, like a lot of other stuff, you know, the the constant changing face of what business looks like, success looks like. I read Dave Eggers' Hologram for the King, that his second. He just came out with one this month. This is the one from before. It's about like, you know, a 50-something-year-old businessman trying to get a job. That just is really yeah. hard, you know? But it's true. Yeah. And, but it that's sucks. The thing. I mean, we told guys... So I grew up in uh, Nazareth, Pennsylvania, which is right <laughs> next to... went through three well, different names of where you live. You'll see, you'll see what I mean. Okay. So I grew up in Nazareth which is by Bethlehem, which is also near Allentown. Allentown. Uh, I understood the progression. Bethlehem had the steel. Bethlehem Steel made all the steel that was used every day. Build the whole Golden Gate Bridge is Bethlehem Steel. Wow. And so like my great-grandmother was a crane operator at Bethlehem Steel. Wow. And uh, I used to make my great-grandmother, when I would go over to her house, this is the drink she wanted me to make her. A blender, two eggs. Ugh. All right, so blender, two eggs, milk, and uh, Seagram 7. Blend it, and that's what she drank. Milk, gin, and eggs. So she raw also eggs? ate raw hamburger constantly. Oh, raw eggs, too. Yeah. My, uh, my nana would drink scotch and milk a lot. Like, that was her drink. Like, People used my, to do that when their stomachs couldn't tolerate really? liquor. Yeah. My, dad, my dad's side of the family, it was his um, grandmother, uh, always, like, draws the like it's like a big running joke like hey you want me to make you a drink i'll make it what nana loved scotch and milk um i was gonna speak to uh so the town that i grew up in lancaster south carolina um was uh uh owned by springs uh which is that textile mm. um or i mean it wasn't owned by but uh right. it, it essentially could have been um so when springs um while I was living there in the like late nineties, early two thousands, started to send stuff overseas. Mm-hmm. Uh, tons, tons of layoffs. Absolutely tons of yeah. layoffs. And it was a small town in South Carolina where everybody who didn't have that much of an education went to work in the mill. Absolutely. So once I was gone, it was devastating for the town. In two thousand eight, when the recession hit, Lancaster, South Carolina was cited as the most vulnerable town in America. Literally, the town that I grew up in, uh, based on um, unemployment rates, based on uh, education or lack thereof. Sure. Uh, And so I think, you know, my family relocated there in uh, about 92. Uh, So we weren't one of those families who had just, you know, was born and bred in Lancaster for generations and generations. And, you know, uh, thankfully, you know, both my parents and most of their parents, if not both sets of their parents were college educated. Like, you know, we came from an educated background. Sure. So that wasn't really what we experienced. But at the same time, neither one of my parents has ever been incredibly well off. I think that's why I have 
a little bit of that fear of like being able to support sure. myself because I never Absolutely. want them to have to feel like they have to support me anymore because sure. uh, um, they do plenty, uh, you know, in non-financial ways. Uh, but yeah, so I, I, it, it is, that's a huge part, especially right now we're going through another time where those industries and, uh, I feel like a lot of the novels that come out of this time period are going to be based around the recession. They have to be. And, you know, it's one of those things where, uh, as you get older, Mm -hmm. the valley of between history repeating itself seems to get shorter, you know? Mm -hmm. And, in the 80s and 70s and 60s when they started like telling guys who worked manufacturing jobs and that's Detroit and Bethlehem every place textile job all those jobs they're like you know these jobs are not going to be here forever got to get trained in technology mm-hmm. well it's all the tech jobs left the country now you know what yeah. I mean like yeah, yeah. where do we train for the next thing of jobs and I'm not it's not my point I'm not even I don't even care to try to answer the question of economics or yeah, yeah, yeah. where people work. Yeah, no. What I am saying though is the idea that the legs get cut out from under you in America constantly mm-hmm. is something that is very American. Mm-hmm. There is a very American idea of you can't rely on absolutely anyone mm-hmm. except yourself and you have to keep moving. Mm-hmm. We are a country of sharks mm-hmm. and I don't mean that like we attack the weak. I mean if we don't keep moving we die. Mm-hmm. And that's why people don't want like when Barack Obama talks about, you know, trade agreements and all this stuff, and there's resistance because it's like we don't have enough jobs here. It's like no, right. we got to keep going. Like right. we've got to figure it out. The only way we're going to figure out how we're viable is, is we through keep... going to these other countries. You know, mm-hmm. that's America. Uh, what do you? How do you think that? Um, first of all, do you, you cited Infinite Just as your favorite novel? Mm. Do you think that to to you, well, you spoke a little bit to the um, the things you think that it's lacking from representing that great American novel. Mm. Uh, do you think there's a, a, uh, a an example that's closer to the great American novel? Uh, whew, man, you don't have to have an answer to this. I just thought I'd put. Oh no, yeah, I, I know it's not a bad question. I mean, if you're going to talk about this, yeah, right? So <laughs> about I don't know. I think uh, the themes of Snows of Kilimanjaro by Hemingway are pretty universal. No cool. matter who you are, we've there's very specifically American things in mm-hmm. there. You know, it's about a guy who breaks his leg halfway up climbing a mountain <laughs> and he'll die before he gets to the bottom and mm-hmm. he'll die if he gets to the top, so he's just gonna die where he sits with mm-hmm. his wife that he doesn't really like anymore. Ooh. And it's quotes like, Love is a dung heap and I am the cock that stands <laughs> on it to crow. I mean, this is like serious <laughs> American ennui, uh-huh. you know, and Hemingway was the king of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Post Office by Bukowski is a great way of looking at like how we work in this country when mm-hmm. we don't have passion, mm-hmm. when Ooh, we're just collecting a paycheck, which uh-huh. is a very American thing. To Absolutely, do. it is. Uh, I think that you know, I think the Great American Novel gets it's it's a patchwork quilt created by everyone who reads. Like the Great American Novel is the following ten books in my experience as a reader. You know, cool. yeah, and uh, those all make up a part of it. I think that you know something <clears throat> that poetry is very important, even though it's not the novel ideas. Like, I think poetry informs how we read 
and use our language. And so I still read, you know, somewhat, I don't read as much as I used to. I don't read Bukowski at all anymore because I'm not a 23-year-old who fucking drinks too much. But <laughs> there's really no use in reading his poetry after a certain point. That's funny. Uh, but I think, though, still great novels are still being read. Yeah. Written. Everything is Illuminated is a great book mm-hmm. by Jonathan Safran Foer. We have a copy of it floating around in the apartment. It's an incredible book. Uh, Adventures of Cavalier and Clay is an amazing book. You just, you, read, you just read something else. I'm currently reading that guy's new book called Telegraph Avenue, and everything he's written that I've read, I've loved. Cool. He's a great guy. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. That's not true. That's I'm just lying. a lie. My yeah. last question is... How do you think that your interest in um, and love for novels and um, you can speak to those uh, specifically the great American novel if you'd like. How do you think that has influenced um, your life and uh, more specifically your uh, creative endeavors? Um, as far as my life goes, it has definitely influenced uh, my capacity for understanding people cool um reading about experiences whether they're fictionalized or not forces you to look through a larger spectrum at your own life Mm -hmm. you know i cannot look (coughs) at my interactions with you are very much so in front of of me and present right now Mm -hmm. but they're also viewed through the spectrum of all these characters Mm -hmm. and concepts that have been foreign to me and that i read about and Mm -hmm. so it's all you know these characters live in our minds Mm -hmm. you know authorship takes you so far Mm -hmm. once you release something into the world it's no longer yours Mm -hmm. that's why some people feel this sense of betrayal when a movie comes out and the person who was cast in a part looks weird yeah that betrayal is because that's not your job like i read this I know what that character looks like. Don't tell me what it looks we like. We all have different You know, the concepts. Harry Potter movie came out, and everybody already had their own idea of what Harry Potter looked at. But if you read those, if you saw that movie and then read the books, you couldn't see Harry Potter as anyone except Daniel Radcliffe. Exactly. You know, mm-hmm. and, and there is a sense of betrayal in that. But it's 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 a funny betrayal. In yeah. Way, I suppose. But I mean, it goes. It can go back to uh, the uh, um, discussion on race when they. Uh, cast the Hunger Games. They're all these people up in arms about. Who are they mad about? Uh, Rue, uh, the uh-huh. like young black girl. Uh-huh. Um, but the weirdest. Well, was she supposed to or not supposed to? The weird. Th- that's what I was about to say. The oh, weird thing is, I in the know. novel, it yeah. says that she's dark skinned That it says that like everyone from that district thing. is dark skinned So it's just like it. I can't believe they made Rue black. And it's like, did you read the book? Like, well, my other thing is like, who or also, shit? it doesn't fucking matter. Yeah. I'm like, who gives a shit? It's a <laughs> shitty movie for an it's okay not a, book yeah. series. Like, yeah. the book series, I've I read the whole series. Uh, enjoyable but mm-hmm. certainly not high fucking no. high fiction and also I don't think those so two books those two second those second two books really fucking drag yeah that the third one, one does for sure I think uh, um, there are things I like about the second one but the third one definitely dragged I finished the first two really quickly it took me a lot longer to get through the third one um, and then the second part of the question how does it affect my creative life mm-hmm. I think that working in theater and performance of scripted or improvised stuff a lot of my own and i've noticed in my own mind uh, thinking through the idea of a narrative rather than a visual cool because our jobs 
on stage, the the one job that is never ours on stage is the director and the stage manager. Mm-hmm. Therefore, the least helpful thing you can be on stage is visually inclined to view what you're doing from an outsider's perspective. I think that hmm. having read and like going deeper into character and reading about character allows you to immerse yourself in character, which is what we're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Ideally. It is the, ideally, the job of the director and the stage manager is to have the outside view. Hmm. It is our job to be inside so far that we don't know what the outside view should look like. Wow. You know, to us, I would imagine, the outside view would be like, it should always be concentrating on this relationship to her, but they know it better than we do, mm-hmm. you know? And I directed a triple feature that, you know, I had this whole scene worked out between... Anthony Oberbeck and Annie Donnelly mm-hmm. and you know they worked pretty hard on this dialogue and I was like I want you guys to have that whole conversation but nobody's gonna hear it and it was all like shot like there was lighting yeah, behind them so the, all you saw were the silhouettes and there was a loud song playing the whole time but they can't be concerned with that you right. know they have to be concerned with this relationship right I think that is something that reading helps with is cool. like you stop thinking of things visually. You start thinking of them esoterically, like cool. outside that concept. So. Cool. I like that. I think I that's something that I could probably improve upon. So it's something we should all. I, I think everybody. The best thing you can do as a performer is to literally have zero self consciousness. Hmm. How hard is that? Right. Impossible. Right. Like let all of our experiences be a reservoir that we can dip from. Mm-hmm. We know what self-conscious feels Man. like. Now move oh, to something God. else. And I give that I give that note all the time to the improv team I coach yeah. where I'm just like, you guys, I I need you guys to be more truthful in scenes, but I don't mean like just recreate the, the conversation that you had with your roommate this morning. I mean like it's fine for you to be creating characters and just letting your personal experiences uh influence the way that you are um you know actually reacting in the scene yeah and i'm i know it's a note that i could probably seem to take myself more but it's so much easier to see when you're looking at it from the outside um i think that in with that in mind i think that makes i think it's interesting to think about people who only direct or only coach or vice versa people who only perform and never really see the other side of that i think you should try it all for sure i do too uh, i think you get more respect for everybody's job mm-hmm. you know except for like obviously everybody respects the stage manager because you're just an idiot <laughs> the hardest most important thing like, yeah the actors really want you to think it's them but really it isn't uh, yeah yeah um but you know, and yeah. it sucks. It's a super thankless thing. I've done it before, and uh, I'm not, I feel I don't like think you've I'm done hurting. it at shows that I've been a part of, and you've been thanked excessively. <laughs> like I actually think you've been overthanked <laughs> for doing it when I've been a part of it. So uh, I wasn't trying to say <laughs> that I hadn't been uh, after uh, that whole exchange i'll close it out with this which is the way that i always close the podcast Uh first of all thank you for doing this sure i think it was great i think it went really well um i didn't apologize uh the last thing that i say on the podcast is that i love you and i mean that oh i love you too (laughs) 
this has been a Nerdalogs production. For more on the Nerdalogs and our shows, please go to www.nerdalogs.com. Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.